Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, the fourth chapter of the letter to the church at Ephesus. You are using the Bibles there in the chairs in front of you. It's on page 815. So we're continuing our study in this letter. And looking at the area of unity, that is the emphasis in this first part. If we really stop and think about it, then questions that come to mind when we speak of unity is how do you have, how do you have agreement when you have dissimilarity in uh, perspectives in opinions if you get a church together you've got a lot of different thoughts ideas perspectives how do you get agreement how do you have affinity when you have great variety and it's not just in a church situation you find that in multiples of areas how do you have unity and diversity and what we've been considering is viewing the church through spiritual eyes. The first practical area of, of life application in this letter, uh, which comes after three chapters of doctrine, is addressing the area of unity in the church. That God would receive glory in the church forever and ever. That's how chapter 3 ends. And for that to happen, there has to be unity. It's essential. But this unity is not an invention of human ingenuity or will. And what I want to consider this morning is the building blocks for that unity. We began last week at looking at some of the practical aspects of that, the, really the admonition, the call to unity. And so I want us to begin again this morning in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, though we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 6. But if we look at verse 1, it gives us that context, and the context really continues down through verse 16, but we'll only look at the first six verses. Follow with me as I begin reading in verse 1 of Ephesians 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as we look into this passage. Father, as we look into your word, we pray that we would apply it personally, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, illumine us, that we would understand the wonderful things out of your word, and that as a church we would grow in applying these aspects that you have given us for unity, that by this all men will know that we are, that we are your disciples. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this passage, we're going to see that as believers in Christ, we have a responsibility to cultivate unity, and God has given us the, the building blocks that we need. He has, he has given us the provision. It's, it's interesting because the local church is not only the place where the Spirit-made unity is evidenced, but it's actually the environment 
where we as believers are equipped for unity and to grow into maturity. It's an area where we see where we may struggle. And, and as we, we've noted, that this opening section really kind of pokes at those areas where, if we're honest, we, we struggle of humility, of recognizing this. And, and as I mentioned, the first 16 verses are actually dealing with unity. It, it begins with the, the essentials for unity. And if I could just give you very quickly the outline of this, you see the essentials in verses 1, and th- 1 through 3 that we considered last week. The foundation for unity or the ground for unity that we'll consider this morning. Then it's the gifts for unity that, that develop the maturity within us as individuals and the church. And, and they're given for the sake of ministry and so that we would grow into that oneness in unity. And that's re- verses 13 through 16. Now, if you, if, to keep it alliterated, the first ones are the graces needed, the ground, the gifts that are given, and this is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we'll see that in, Lord willing, next week. And, and then the aspect of growth that comes as we serve. The gifts are given for the sake of ministry. And the purpose is to do that in the the local church. And I emphasize this because I I find that it's significant that not only is unity the starting point in considering how to walk worthy of our calling, it also constitutes about 18% of the practical section. That when you consider the number of verses given to the area of unity, it's a significant piece. I mean, it's going to talk about our relationships with one another, putting off the things of the world, uh, walking in the Spirit, the, the armor of God, all of these pieces coming together, and yet about 18% of it is dealing with unity within the body. And, and we saw this last week. We considered the, the essentials last week, the characteristics and commitment. And, and I've given you that again in your bulletin so that you have the outline. It began with that uh, hum- humility that we're to be humble. It says, with all lowliness and understanding, again, the context of the church at Ephesus. You've got believers that were Jews and Gentiles now put together in the same body. They are part of the same family. That, that would not be a family reunion that without the working of the Holy Spirit would go well. And they were so radically different, and now they're united. United in Christ. Both needed an attitude that was the opposite of self-seeking pride. They had to be humble. Because pride brings nothing but strife. We see that in, in all types of relationships, in the workplace, in the home, in the church. When there's pride, it brings strife. The person who is, lo- is proud demands to be heard. They, if they're not heeded, they're going to punish people who didn't listen to them. And, and so be humble with all lowliness, and then gentleness, be gentle. And we talked about how that's the idea of strength under control, the ability to keep emotions, feelings in check, that not being harsh or rude. And we noted that both of these words are preceded with all, with all lowliness and gentleness. That this this needs to be in all areas of our life. And then we're to be patient with long-suffering, bearing with one another, instead of being short-tempered, to be long-suffering, long-tempered. And and to do it in a spirit of love, not just, well, I'll get through this. So how do we put up with annoyances and disagreements and even being wronged? 
We have to respond in love and not seeking our own, not easily provoked. So patience is essential. And we see this throughout the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, it says, We're to warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. So some have to be corrected, and you, you have to deal with that. You've got to confront. You need to bring enough pressure to bear that they take it to heart. And so you correct the disorderly, you comfort the faint, you carry the weak, but in all those situations, you're to show patience. And then we're to be diligent, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, as it says in, in these verses, that, that we don't create the unity, but we must cultivate it, we must guard it. We have to have a heart that's striving to maintain that and working at it to, to be diligent. And then that takes discernment. It takes prudence in the bond of peace. And the commitment to unity will require wisdom, knowing when and how to address areas of disagreement or concern or conflict. When, when is it something that love should cover? When do we need to address it? And whatever the case, we have to do it in an attitude of humility and gentleness not arrogance and harshness if we're going to be diligent in maintaining that unity. It necessitates discernment. It takes discernment to know who are those who would be sowing seeds of discord. And, and you say, okay, but all of that sounds fine, but still, how can you have unity with people who have different ideas, different opinions, different perspectives, different positions? You know, it, it sounds great. That's an atti the attitudes, but how do you have unity? You have unity by having one passion, one focus, the unifying ambition of seeking to bring glory to God in the church. That these are the attitudes, but when we see the oneness that there is in Christ, we focus on and are committed to a purpose that is bigger than us personally, that's greater than ourselves, getting involved in something outside of ourselves. And that's what motivates, that's what encourages. And, and I think we can see this very practically. We see it every Sunday in our music program. You know, the members of the choir are, are singing different notes. And sometimes they come in at different times. But it's done in harmony to enhance one song. They have one focus, that that song, the message of that song would come across properly and when done properly, the difference adds to proportion, it adds to harmony, and it's done with order. And, and we, we take it for granted. But can you imagine if one Sunday the soprano said, you know, we really don't like the, the tempo that Pastor Dave is setting. It, it's just not the, right, it's not the pace we're going to go at today. And they get together and say, we're going to do it differently. And then the tenors decide, you know, our, our part, it's, yeah, it's a support, but it's a little too obscure. We deserve more prominence. And so we're really going to sing it out. We're, we're going to take the lead, even though it's not the melody line. And, and the altos decide they just want a totally different song. Like, forget the pace. We, we, don't, we want a different song. And the bassists just decide to sit down and watch the show. Because <laughs> this is going to be really fun. You know, it, it wouldn't take very long for even non-musical people to be saying, you know, that's not a real song. This isn't going well. We have unity when they're on the same page, following the director. 
And if they don't, the director may get the blame, but there was a whole lot more going on that created the problems. And we, and we can smile and laugh at that kind of an illustration, but, but isn't that sometimes what brings disunity in a church? Somebody doesn't like the pace. Well, I wanted it at a different pace. Or their lack of prominence. I didn't get noticed. Or they just want a totally different agenda, a different direction. And others just want to watch what's happening. And we see how that can cause disunity. And that's why it's so important that our focus be that we would exalt God. That our, uh, that our focus has to be that, that unto Him be glory in the church. And recognizing this. And then verses 4 through 6 provide the components or the building blocks that, that are needed, that are foundational to bring us together, that we're on one team. You know, you can, you can have a team that's all dressed in the same uniform, uniforms, but they may not be united. They may not be playing as a team. And when we understand the pieces that the Lord has given us, we, we find the foundation for unity. And we notice the seven ones in this, the ones that are mentioned here that are the ground in which we will cultivate that unity. And as we go through it, I want us to notice as well the Trinitarian emphasis on, on this unity, that all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned, the Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. And we see that. And so I want us to work through these this, this morning. There's, there's so much that could be said, but a, kind of a, a quick overview. But I trust it will give us the pieces that we can meditate upon. The first one is the one body. And, and we see this. The church as the body of Christ has already been discussed in chapters 1 through 3. In fact, if you want to look back a page or, or maybe across the page, but in chapter 1, look at verse 22. It says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That, it's speaking of Christ. All things have been placed under him. He's the head of the body, the church. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Christ abolished the, the enmity, making one new humanity. That's verse 15. And verse 16 says that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Who? Gentiles and Jews are brought together in one body. And then in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul is proclaiming that the mystery that he gets to share is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And so what we're used to hearing, this was, this was all new. This was the mystery that Paul is sharing and that Christ is the head and we're brought together. And so when we're speaking of the body of Christ or the body church as it's sometimes referred to, that in this context there's an aspect where it's all believers that have been saved during the church age from Pentecost to the rapture that that makes up the church. We, we refer to this as the church age. That the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and we consider that to be the beginning of the church, the birthday of the church. That those who are saved during this church age 
And we believe that goes until the, the rapture when the church is taken out of the world and the, the restraining work of the church. That One of the reasons that we are here is to be salt and light, to stop corruption and to show the truth. And understand, that's why the world hates us. That's why we get attacked. When you say, you know, I'm just trying to be a good coworker. I'm trying to be a good neighbor. I'm trying to, and, and yet we get attacked for our position because the world hates us. And Jesus said, don't be surprised. But part of it is they know that we are stopping the corruption that they're seeking to present and promote. And they're not thinking of it as corruption, but that's what it is because they're motivated by their father, the devil. And so the, the understanding that, that, that the church, the body of Christ, or the, the body church, it's sometimes called the, the universal church. I'm not, as, I'm not as comfortable with that term because it, people tend to think of universalism, that everybody ends up getting saved. That's not what it means and that's not true. Uh, maybe the church in prospect, sometimes the invisible church. There's a lot of different terms that are speaking of all of those believers both on this earth and those in heaven from Pentecost to the rapture. But understand that the local church is the visible expression of the body church. So when Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, he's writing to a local body. He's addressing that body in that particular location. This letter went to that local body at Ephesus. The body of Christ has, has no organization or function on earth except as it's expressed in local churches. So God's plan for this age is the local church. That's why it's so important that we have spiritual eyes as we look at the church. And understanding that, that each con local congregationism is in, in some aspect to be a manifestation of the heavenly entity the called-out assembly of Christ that is gathering from every tribe, every language, every tongue, every people group, every nationality, and bringing together in one unified body for the glory of God. Now understand, just because somebody is a member of the church does not mean they're part of the, of the body of Christ. You have to be born again to be part of Christ's body. And in local church membership, and as Baptists, we believe in a saved church membership. We go on the testimony, but it should reflect that. But understanding that, that you have to be saved for local church membership to be proper, legitimate, and correct. And if you're part of the universal church, the invisible church, if you are part of the body church, then it's important to be part of a local body so that we can show the unity of Christ, the visible function of the head, who is Christ, as he directs and desires. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he's doing it in the visible realm. And he said, by this will all men know you're my disciples when you love one another. So our unity is vital. That we, we, in, we are individually the body parts that he provides for service. And all of this is important because if you look back at verse 3, when it speaks of the bond of peace, the, the, the idea of the word bond there is it's really the ligaments holding the body parts together. And if, if you've ever had ligament damage, whether torn or stretched, that causes pain and problems. And the work doesn't get done real well. The mobility and function are hindered. 
Therefore, it's important that we don't add unnecessary stress and strain to the ligaments. We guard endeavoring to keep the unity of the body in the bonds of peace. The same picture is, is developed more fully in, in 1 Corinthians 12. In fact, if you want to turn over to 1 Corinthians 12, I, I've put a, several of the verses on the, the screen, but I'm going to look at a couple of others because Paul is addressing the church at Corinth. If you're familiar with the letter to the church at Corinth, there were some major problems of disunity. You know, they, they, were, they were picking their teams based around who they liked as their favorite preacher. You know, some said, well, I'm of... I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. And then there were the hyper-spiritual ones that said, well, we just follow Jesus. And, and, and Paul said, I, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you. <laughs> Which I think indicates that that wasn't part of the, what's required for salvation. But he's saying, that's not helping the unity. And so he's dealing with multiple problems. And then he comes to chapter 12, and in verse 12 he says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all members of that one body, being mem many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member but many and now he gets very specific in the illustration in verse 15 he says if the foot should say because I am not the hand I am not part of the body is it not therefore part of the body and if the ear should say because I am not the eye I am not part of the body is it therefore not of the body if the whole body were the eye where would be the hearing if the whole were the hearing where would be the smelling but now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? And so he's using the very physical illustration to say we need different body parts. And if the, the ear gets jealous of the eye, then that's going to be a problem. We need both. And if, if we lose hearing or if we lose sight, it creates challenges. And, and, so that, and, and recognizing that it is God who chooses. And we'll actually see in Ephesians in the coming verses that he's the one who gives gifts because Christ is the victor. And that, that we'll, we'll look at in coming weeks. But I want you to see how all of this is coming together. God chooses the members. So that's why I mentioned that we're not a religious club. You can join a club and pick who's part of it. Or if you want to be part of that group. But God picks who comes to the church. And, and that's why we have to have humility. We have to be patient. We have to show gentleness. And, and so then it, it discusses these, these aspects. And, and God chooses, and all members have a part. That's why we say ministers every member. It's to put into practice what we're seeing here in Ephesians, what we see in, in 1 Corinthians. The members of the body must take direction from the head. That's Jesus Christ. We see that back in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, chapter 5, verse 23. And, and recognizing that each part of the body has a purpose. So the question, the application for all of us then is, are you actively functioning as part of a local spiritual body? The visible body in this world. That the body is the substance, the visible substance. 
And just as our physical bodies have a body and a spirit, we have a material and an immaterial part, well, so does the church. And so we've got to say, are we actively functioning as part of the body because we're one body? But the second thing that we see is there's one spirit. There's only one body because there's only one spirit. And it's the spirit who gives life to the spiritually dead. we, We refer to that in theological terms as regeneration giving spiritual life to the spiritual, spiritually dead. If the body doesn't have a spirit, it's a corpse. When the spirit departs, there's no life. And the same thing can happen to a church. If there is a, a religious group without the spirit, then it's really just a religious gathering. It's a religious corpse. And I recall one time I ended up in a church service that from external perspectives, it, it seemed fine. The, the people were cordial. The sermon was good Bible teaching. As I thought about it, I noticed there really was very little gospel emphasis or appeal. Jesus Christ really wasn't mentioned. It, it, but, but I, you know, I, I got some things out of it. But when I walked out of there, I thought, you know, something seemed to be lacking I, I didn't sense that there had been this, this spirit of worship. And I, and I wondered, did I just attend a religious event that wasn't animated by the Holy Spirit? You know, when, when you are with others, and, and I've had the opposite experience, where you go to a church, you don't know anybody, you meet them, and there's a unity. I've had that many times on mission fields, and sometimes we don't even speak the same language. And yet there's a unity because there's one spirit. And, and, and you sense that, that there, you're worshiping one God in one spirit, and there's life. Well, it's the Holy Spirit, the one who places us into the body of Christ. As I've already mentioned, I believe that began for the church at Pentecost. Jesus had told his disciples, stay here and you will receive power in not many days after the Spirit comes upon you. And Paul, Peter is preaching on Pentecost, and the Spirit comes. And the same Spirit comes on both the Jews and the Gentiles that were there. And that was the sign that Joel had spoken of. And the sign gifts that are authenticating the message and the messenger and and seeing that, that it was the Spirit that fell upon them. The Spirit is the one who creates the unity, as we saw in verse 3 of Ephesians 4. And we're told to keep it, to guard it. And so the question then is, do we have a craving for spiritual things? If we're going to guard the unity, we have to be controlled by the Spirit. So are you seeking to consistently be controlled by the Spirit? Later on in this letter, Paul's going to talk about walking in the Spirit. But we have to understand the works of the flesh will not cultivate the unity of the Spirit. But the Spirit has created the unity that we are to be diligent to keep, and for that we need the Spirit's help because we can't do this. I can't do this. And so we we have to be controlled by the Spirit. The third thing that we see is there's one hope. That hope is the anticipation of the future. It's the, the settled assurance that what God has promised He will do. Before salvation, those without Christ have no hope. And we see that in our culture. We see that in our world. There's a hopelessness because they're trying to find answers and life without Christ isn't supposed to work. 
And, and yet there's a hopelessness. So we see the increase of suicide and frustration and all sorts of, of problems. And, and, and that's the case for all unbelievers, all that are, are lost. But it was particularly pointed out in Ephesians for the Gentiles. In chapter 2, verse 12, it said that the Gentiles, because they lacked the covenant promises, they were without hope in this world. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, though, it says that God causes the eyes of your understanding to be enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. When we've come to Christ, the Holy Spirit turns on the light, opens our eyes, and we have that anticipation, the hope that we can serve the Lord. That's what brings us to that one passion, the unity that we have. When God calls the believer into fellowship or into relationship with him, he offers that hope which focuses on God's faithfulness. So I can say, I know who I have believed. I'm persuaded he's able to keep what's been committed to him against that day. Why? Because God is faithful. It's not based on my faithfulness. Our forgiveness is based on his faithfulness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives us and cleans us up. He's faithful to do that. So that gives hope that we have this, that God is, is gracious in his purpose. The hope of the gospel, that's what brings us together. It's the, the unity in Jesus Christ that our sins are forgiven because of Christ alone. Do you have that hope? Do you have that? Because that's what provides stability. That's what gives us confidence. That's when the, the, the problems, the pressures, the conflicts of life come that keep us stable. So do you delight in and display the hope of your salvation? To a lost world, is, do people, and some of you have had these testimonies and shared them that, you know, you've got a coworker, something's different about you. When the panic of our culture hits and to say, yes, but there's a hope. Why? Because this world isn't my home. And I know God's in control. And he's working all things together for his good and his glory, our good, his glory for those who love him. And so he's working that we have that hope. And we ought to show that. doesn't mean that we don't have difficulties. It doesn't mean there aren't times of sorrow, that there aren't times of pain, but, but our hope is in the Lord. And so the fourth thing we see is there is one Lord. The term Lord that is used here is the, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. When they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, this is the word that they used for Yahweh. Lord, the, the, speaking of God, it was the early church's statement that Jesus is God. And, and it was probably the earliest church creed because during that day, it was culturally acceptable in many cases that Romans would greet one another in the morning and, and they would say, Caesar is Lord. And it was a common greeting. And Christians knew better and so they would say, Jesus is Lord. And understanding, they recognized Jesus as God, not just a son of God, not just God-like, not just a good example, but the Word incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. And this was their declaration, Jesus is Lord. And so it was not uncommon for them to say that, but it was a statement of recognizing his, his deity. And, and it's important because that's where our salvation is. Romans 10 verse 9 says, 
If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I think it's important that we understand that when he is Lord, that means he's sovereign, that we don't come on our terms or our time. You know, sometimes people say, well, I'll I'll get saved later. No. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. We're not guaranteed of tomorrow. And so it's, it's foolish to put that off, that we come and say, confess that he is my Lord and Savior. It doesn't mean that we've got everything right, but there's an anticipation and, and that now is that time, that tomorrow is not guaranteed. This is actually Paul's favorite title for Jesus. There are over 20 references just in Ephesians to Jesus as Lord. It began in chapter 1, verse 2. It continues right on through the book. In in verse 1 of chapter 4, we see it again. Paul acknowledges he's the prisoner of the Lord. What is Paul saying? He says, you know, this is God's will. It wasn't Paul's choice to be in prison. He said, you know what, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I'm serving the Lord, and if he brings it, I I will allow. I'm submissive. I, I want his will, his work, his way. When you call him Lord, you recognize he has a right to rule in our lives. And therefore, we have to be asking, Lord, what would you have me do? Speak, Lord. As Dr. Davis played for our offertory this morning, for your servant hears that we will follow. So the question then is, are you increasing in your submission to the Lordship of Christ? Are we striving to grow? You know, and I've heard at times somebody say, well, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. I, I struggle with that. I, I, because I would say, well, does that mean every thought you've had today and every thought you haven't had and everything you've said and everything you haven't said and everything you did and everything you didn't do was perfectly pleasing to the Lord? None of us is there. But we're seeking to grow and we would say, Lord, work in my heart. If we're saying, well, I'll let you have some areas but not the other, then, then realize... He's a king. He's not a beggar. And we have to be submissive. When, when we believe in Jesus, we belong to him. We behave in a way that brings glory to him. That ought to be our goal. In fact, 1 Corinthians six nineteen says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who's in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? I mean, for the believer, our body is God's body. It's his body. It's his choice. I mean, this whole mantra of my body, my choice is a declaration of an unsafe person. Or of somebody who believes in Christ and they're uninformed, they're unspiritual, and or unsubmissive. Because we're not our own. We are bought with a price. But you see, when we say something is wrong, why our world pushes back? And we struggle. I mean, we, none of us is as submissive as we should be. We're growing, but that ought to be our goal to say, Lord, I want you to have your way in my life. See, the, the one spirit provides the, the surety that gives one hope and the power to surrender because we can't do this in ourselves. To one Lord, and that's the reason then that we have one faith, which is the fifth thing that we see in this list. It speaks of the substance of our salvation the, the realization of, you know, faith is the substance or the realization of things hoped for, the evidence, the confidence of things not seen. 
When a person comes to know who Jesus is in his person and work, the Holy Spirit is the one who turns on the light, illumines the mind, that, that it reveals that, okay, that's who Christ is. And it brings about that saving faith. In our evening service, we're, we're looking at uh, molded by the master, the call of the disciples, the apostles, the twelve. And, and we'll be looking this evening, but I'm, it's fascinating to see how as they're around Jesus, they grow in their understanding. They, they realize his deity and then his authority and, and his message and his ministry, his mission, and all of this is, is that growing. When we come to Christ as newborn babes, we are to desire the sincere milk of the word that we will grow. So it doesn't happen all at once, but there's that growing. And it comes through the word because Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Romans is telling us that, that this is where our faith comes and then Ephesians 6, verse 16 says, Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Faith comes by hearing in a believing way the word of God. And so if somebody said, well, I don't believe that, I try to direct them to God's word. Now, if, they, if they're just going to read as a cynic, that's not, believing, that's not reading in a way that says, okay, but I'm open to what does God's word say? And if there is a willingness to seek, the Holy Spirit will work because God's Word is alive. But it's also how we as believers are strengthened. So we are to, as newborn babies, desire the milk of the Word. And that's not just for young Christians. That's for all of us. It's the attitude we're to have toward the Bible. So how are we doing in our devotional life? Are you growing in faith through a commitment to hear the Word of God? That's one of the reasons it's important to come together as a church family. To be here on Sunday, the first day of the week, I believe as, as Romans or as Revelation speaks of it, the Lord's Day. That we come together as a church family. And, and part of it is to encourage one another. Part of it is to grow in our unity, but it's to hear the preaching of the word and the teaching and encourage one another. And, and the Bible tells us in Hebrews we're to do it even more as we see the day approaching. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Because we're in an evil day. We have to do all to stand. Well, part of that standing is taking the shield of faith. And we take it through the word of God. Proverbs 24.10 tells us if we faint in the day of adversity, our strength is small. How do I strengthen my faith? Be in the word personally through the week. Be in it practically and corporately as we have opportunities and seek to lean into that, not pull away from it. So are we committed to the Word? The next thing we see is one baptism. There are actually a couple of aspects, and we've already spoken of one generally. There are two aspects of baptism that apply to the church. One is what the Bible speaks of and we refer to as spirit baptism where the Holy Spirit places us into the body of Christ. The other is water baptism. That's the public symbol of the inner heart change that the Spirit has already produced. The Spirit baptism is the positional placing of a person into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, when we read that, spoke of it. It said, for by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. 
And so it's that building agent, the spirit baptism, that's why I believe the church began at Pentecost. When the spirit came, the spirit baptism is the building agent for the church. And his coming is what then motivated and the church began and, and you see that growth through Acts. And I believe that ends at the, the rapture. And so we see that. But water baptism then symbolizes what the Spirit has done. That we are part of the body of Christ. That we are saved. That we've been born again. And, and we, we ask those questions when somebody is baptized. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Is it your desire? Is it your intention to live for Him? It's a public statement. And, and baptism doesn't make a person a Christian. I've used the illustration, it's like my wedding ring. That, that my wedding ring is a public statement, it's a symbol of my commitment to my wife. But if I lose my wedding ring, it doesn't change that commitment. Or I, somebody could put, find my ring and put it on and that doesn't make them married. And just because somebody gets baptized doesn't make them saved. It's based on their profession of faith. And we're trusting them. But it is a step of obedience. It's part of the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them. They're teaching them to observe all things and baptizing. It's, it's a symbol. But it's an important symbol because it's a, it's a symbol of our unity with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Buried in the likeness of his death as they go down under the water, and the picture is that burial, raised to walk. How? In a new way. A new way of living. It's that public statement. And so in Romans 6, verse 4, it says, Therefore, we, are, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also should be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who is dead has been freed from sin. So if we have died with Christ, we can walk to new life because we have that life. So the question then is, do you, does your daily life demonstrate that you have been raised to walk in a new way of living? And each time we have a baptismal service, that ought to be what those of us who have already made that public statement are reminded of. Yes, I have said I will walk in a new way. How am I doing? And we rejoice with those who make that statement. That it is a step of obedience. Have you taken that? Made that public statement? And then the last thing we see in this passage is there's one God and Father. And we see that in verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And, and the... There's an element here that all raises a lot of questions and we don't have the time this morning to dig into all of that. Commentators have a number of different uh, thoughts as to what this means. There is an element, I believe, where the all does refer to his sovereignty over all. But I think the context here seems to indicate that the one God is the Father of all who have been brought near through Jesus Christ. It's speaking of the unity that we have in the church 
that it says in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, the Gentiles were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, they have been brought near by the blood of Christ. They've been brought near to God. And we can pray, as Jesus taught, our Father who is in heaven. And, and, and we, we use this terminology quite frequently. We pray, dear Heavenly Father, our gracious Father. We, that, but under, do you understand that is very much a Christian statement? That was not the Jews. They, they did not refer to God as their father. Now, it might have been the father of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their patriarchal fathers, but not personally. This is really a Christian statement and understanding how amazing that is that we have this relationship that we can pray our father in times of turmoil or pain that our spirit the spirit works in us to cry out Abba father as we read in Romans but you know when Jesus used that in the garden of Gethsemane the night that he was betrayed before his crucifixion as he prayed Abba father We find that in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. And we too can come to God as our Father. What a profound truth that we can do that. And and why can we do that? Because chapter 1 told us God had predestined us to the adoption of sons and we are accepted in the beloved. He's accepted us. In 1 John chapter 3, John John is amazed at this. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. We're God's kids. He's our Father. He is the perfect Father. You know, some of you didn't have very good fathers. He is the perfect Father. He will never leave you. He won't forsake you. He won't forget your birthday. He knows even the number of hairs on your head. There's not a sparrow that falls from the sky that he doesn't know. So he does know us. And his love is perfect. He's motivated by perfect love. So we can say, Lord, whatever comes into my life when I love you, I know that it works together for your glory and my good. So the question is, do you reflect on and rejoice in your unique relationship with God the Father? The question that precedes that is, is he your father? And if not, as I've already said, today is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you come in faith alone, trusting the finished work of Christ alone, you can have that relationship and call him your father. And for us as believers, when we have that relationship, if we will consider these building blocks, these pieces, it will bring our hearts together with one purpose, one passion, that unto him be glory in the church. And we say, Lord, let that be in my life. Let's pray together.